The following is a production of the Phoenix Studios Podcast Network here at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. For more podcasts, be sure to visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts. This is Serious Serious Fun. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Serious Fun. Uh, this is the first episode of Serious Fun in a while. Uh, we're back on the Phoenix Studios Podcast Network, and it's been a long summer. Um, technically, Serious Fun summer started in March because that was the last time I did one of these. Uh, but the summer season means only one thing, movies, and lots of them. You could also probably go outside or something like that, but why? Here to help us sort out through the Hollywood hoopla and talk about where movies are at after an eventful few months is one of my favorite people, an associate professor in the School of Broadcast and Cinematic Arts at Central Michigan University, Dr. Patty Williamson. Hi, Patty. Welcome to Serious Fun. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, so it's good to talk to you. I haven't talked to you, uh, 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 you know, via voice in a while. Uh, yeah, that's true. Normally we are... Uh interacting more through messages and texts mm -hmm. and things like that. So it's good to hear your voice. Thank you. Now, the very few people say that, but thank you. Um, <laughs> I'm so, sure that's not true. That's pretty true. Uh, so let's talk about uh, who we're here to talk about. That's you. Um, I would like to start off serious fun because um, I know who you are and you know who you are, but folks listening might not know who you are. Um, so give us a little bit of the Patty Williamson story. Tell us a bit about yourself. Who is Patty Williamson? What's your area of expertise, your interests, your hopes, your dreams, uh, whatever? <laughs> it seems like more of an existential question, but I'll give you the basics. Um, so I'm, like you said, I'm an associate professor at Central Michigan University. I have been at CMU for about 20 years in the School of Broadcast and Cinematic Arts. I tend to do more work with film. Um, I do a lot of coursework uh, in uh, the normal school year, either looking at a specific director or a specific genre, but it, te it, it changes every semester. So I tend to do a lot of stuff with film criticism, film history, film theory, and I also look a lot at television as well. Most of my research tends to be in the realm of gender, race, sexual orientation, sexual identity, and those represent, uh, representations in film, but also uh, sort of glass ceiling issues within the media industry. So I guess that in a nutshell is sort of where I'm coming from an academic standpoint. Just personally, I love movies. I love TV. I love the media. So I watch a lot of it. And uh, you, you're, you're in the right place, uh, I, I would say, uh, because that's pretty much uh, what we do here, or at least I, I keep saying we, it's really just me. I don't have a producer or anything. It's like the royal that. we. Yes, it's, it's the mouse. And uh, I don't want to like, you know, you know, the mouse in my pocket, right? I, I always <laughs> joke that, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I could be referring to the cat, but I don't, he doesn't like me speaking for him. Um, you have to be so, careful if you use a mouse, though, Disney might want some sort of profit right. sharing. 
And that kind of leads very nicely. That's a very natural segue into our first big topic, because I brought you on um, because you are obviously very much an authority and very much an expert on issues pertaining to the media. I know I learned a lot from you back at CMU. Um, and it's been an interesting summer uh, in a lot of ways because we are staring down um, a media singularity that we probably, I, I don't know if there's really precedent for the Disney stranglehold right now. I really don't think there is. I mean, even if you go back to the days before we had antitrust laws, really, even the old studio system, you didn't have one studio taking this much of the market share. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this really is a brand new ball game. Yeah, and so you, the numbers really bear that out. So. We're looking at, uh, and this, these numbers come from IndieWire.com, so if they're wrong, that's on them, not me. Um, <laughs> but uh, they estimate that the summer movie box office is coming in around $4.5 billion, um, about where it was last year, maybe slightly behind, I think is what they were saying. Uh, but of that $4.5 billion, Disney claims about half of it. Half yeah. of it which is staggering. Uh, it's a crazy amount of money for one company to be bringing in. And I was also looking at the numbers from Box Office Mojo, mm -hmm. and they're very similar to what you have. I mean, if you look at the top six movies, it's Disney is, has released five of the six, mm -hmm. and they're big money makers. Right. I mean, even and, and it seems like they don't even have to try for the most part. Uh, they can come out with this kind of warmed over remake of The Lion King and it's on its way to one point six billion dollars. You know, uh, a fair to middling Aladdin makes a billion dollars easily. And of course, that's not, that's not to say nothing of the Marvel movies and Avengers Endgame becoming the highest grossing film of all time. You know, unless we account for inflation. Where do you stand on that, by the way? Should we account for inflation? When we talk about this kind of stuff. Oh, I think it's always difficult. I mean, I think you really should to a certain extent because there's a big difference between selling tickets and looking at the actual dollar figure. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, of course, the the monetary figures, if you're not adjusting for inflation, look ridiculously large. But at the same time, I can see just from looking at a market share perspective today I don't know that it matters that much. I think if you're looking historically, then yeah, I think you should adjust for inflation. But I think if we're just going to look at this year and say, hey, who's making money? I don't know that it matters all that much. Not terribly. I mean, in a very real cosmic sense, none of this really matters, right? <laughs> um, you know, it's a lot of, I, I certainly on my end, I see uh, a lot of people just kind of arguing over which franchise is better and that sort of thing based on money. Um, you know, and of course, you had like the uh, contingent of people who were just adamant, adamant that Avengers had to beat Avatar uh, at the box office. Never mind that they're both owned by the same company now. So it's a really a pretty pointless. Um, and the dog agrees with me. It's a very pointless uh, <laughs> endeavor. Um, yes, Riley agrees completely. <laughs> dog had, uh, Riley has taste. What can I say? Um, I'll try to close that door. So maybe, <laughs> maybe Riley will not, you know, just break in with his opinions. 
Yeah, well, I mean, like you know, like I, uh, you, you're hardly the first who's had their uh, dog or cat or somebody uh, interject in one of these. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's part of the charm. We uh, audio verite, I think, is what I what is what I'm going for here. Yeah, um, that's perfect. So, it, so we're in a really interesting position, um, you know, especially because you could we could argue, you know, whether or not like is Avengers really the highest grossing movie of all time? What about Gone with the Wind? Well, the the, the business has changed dramatically, right? You know, Gone with the Wind was a revival show, and that's how it made a lot of its money. It would go from town to town. It was the only thing on, and that kind of thing. Uh, so in a lot of ways, you know, is that really, it's apples to oranges, and maybe Avengers looks better in that context because there is more competition, but that's a rabbit hole we don't have to get down. Um, what's interesting, though, is that if we look at this, um, someone made the argument that movie theaters rely on Disney now. Like, basically, you are counting down the days as a theater owner and operator until Disney's next thing comes out, because what else can you do? Right. Yeah, I, and that just, for me, that makes me sad. Mm -hmm. um, I think partly, of course, it is that you really need to do more to motivate people to go to the theater these days. There are so many more mm -hmm. options, obviously. You know, I know it takes quite a bit even for me, and I love going to the movies, but to really motivate me to get out there and pay money to buy my ticket, to buy concessions, and sit down there in the seat for whatever it is, two and a half hours mm -hmm. now for most of the films that are coming out, yeah. when I could just stay home and stream something to my TV or to my phone or to whatever I'm watching something on. It, it's a much more difficult sell than it used to be. Um, but it's still, it still, it makes me sad that there's one company that mm -hmm. is sort of just, it, it has a bit of a stranglehold on the industry. And I think it has a negative effect on these smaller indie films and trying to get them booked and trying to find an audience, trying to find theaters that will even take a chance on some of these smaller films because they're really just looking for those big blockbuster and tentpole releases uh, to get them through. Right. And, but, but interestingly enough, it's not just the indie films that are struggling. Um, a lot of the big blockbuster movies that came out this summer underperformed uh, relative to what the studios were hoping. Right. Yeah, that's uh, true. Godzilla didn't come, uh, came out. I, it's not a flop, but it certainly did not make the money they were hoping it would make. Um, you know, we, uh, I'm trying to think what other movies have come out. Uh, you know, a lot of these other big ticket franchises just kind of struggled. Uh, and they had a, they had trouble breaking through. Uh, and only a handful of those franchises actually did well. Uh, you know, you had Fast and Furious, which is pretty reliable at this point. Um, John Wick did pretty well for itself, but those movies are fairly cheap. I think Keanu is probably the most expensive part of them. Um, right. And if you look at... Uh, and so not only are these, these franchises underperforming, and there is that lack of indie films, but there's also just not that many movies coming out that are not part of some larger media franchise, right? Um, mm -hmm. Even allowing for things like, say, Yesterday, which we'll probably talk about here in a minute. Yes, technically that's an original film, but it's part of the Beatles media franchise in a very real way, right? It's relying on that to get people into the theater, Um you know, I, I, the uh, the numbers I looked at said that uh, w only one fully original movie was in the top ten for this summer, and that's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I know you have a lot to say about. Um, so we're going to come back to that later. Yes. Uh, 
<laughs> I, <laughs> I would mean, just say so, yes. So what do you make of all this? Like, you know, are we in a position where we're looking at a situation that the movie industry um, has a, as, is kind of at a reckoning point? Yeah, I just, I hate to be one of those people who is just kind of down on the industry, but I get so tired of the remakes coming out. Um, first, it was the sequels and the prequels, and I found that somewhat annoying, but that's been going on so long that how are you going to fight it? But now I, I just really get annoyed by all of the remakes that are coming out, mm -hmm. and I know it's nostalgia, and I know it's introducing something you love to a new generation. But to me, you know, the new version of The Lion King, I, I just had absolutely no interest in seeing it. And I know technologically it was doing really exciting things. Um, but I don't know that I need to see the story told that way. Right. Um, and the same with a lot of these kind of remakes. Dumbo, for example. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, Dumbo, the Disney original, is a pretty perfect movie. Um, and I think that's one of those films that you look at, and it didn't really do as well as I think they thought it would do coming out. Um, and I don't know, you know, would they be better off to do what Disney used to do, which was just re-release the old version instead of doing a brand new version. Um, I guess they figure everybody owns them now or either mm -hmm. has a download or they have a DVD version of it. Um, but I just feel like it is sort of a, a real drain on the creativity of the industry that we don't have as many original stories, especially for me, I, I am in, a small college town in a rural area and mm -hmm. we have one movie theater in town and we get basically six films, eight films at a time that come here. And we don't really get much other than either the blockbusters or the films that are really, really specifically targeting, targeting sort of a high school college aged crowd. So we do get a lot of the sequels, the prequels, all of the superhero movies, of course, the horror films mm. that come out, the teen comedies, but we don't get much else. Yeah, we're in the same, we're kind of in the same boat here. We have two theaters in town, but they're both owned by the same company. And one mm, will course. sometimes carry uh, smaller films than the other. Um, but it's, it's always a crapshoot to kind of see which theater is going to carry which movies. Am I going to have to drive across the, the bridge to go see Black Klansmen? Um, you know, that kind of thing. So, mm -hmm. so that, I mean, that's one of the other big challenges, right? Because from, from the theater owner perspective, you got to book what sells, right? Right. Um, if you're in a market that isn't really interested in the smaller scale indie art stuff, there's no sense booking it. There's no sense in spending the money to get the movie there. But for those people who want that, it becomes really challenging to actually watch those movies. Yeah. And I do, though, I have to wonder... Some of the films, um, again, we kind of get into this idea that the business model in the film industry has really been based on targeting 14 to 24-year-old men. Mm -hmm. And we've seen time and again when you have a film that targets women and you really market it to women, women go to the theater to mm -hmm. see movies. 
Um, so is it that there isn't an audience for it or is it that there isn't product that will necessarily bring those other demographics out to the theater? I mm-hmm. don't know. I'm not totally convinced that it isn't sort of, you know, chicken and egg sort of situation. Well, I mean, certainly like, like so we, we've talked about this on, on this podcast before, the whole notion of, uh, you know, like to pick a genre at random out of a hat, the superhero genre, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that one alone is characterized by the fact that you had a lot of the executives making these decisions, looking at this and saying, well, we don't want to make a movie starring a female superhero because we don't think we will go see it. Um, and the reason we don't think we will go see it is that we don't really have any evidence that they'll go see it. But you haven't made a movie. <laughs> exactly. Like, and certainly not a good one. Right. Like the you know, um, when they when the Sony hat came out, you had Ike Perlmutter, um, you know, who's the who's the head of Marvel. He was in an, in an email exchange basically pointing at things like Elektra and Catwoman and, and Supergirl from the 80s and saying, hey, these are bad movies. They didn't do well. Therefore, people don't want to go see, you know, movies with women in the lead role. But the answer is no, they don't want to go see bad movies. Right? Exactly. <laughs> and they and, don't want to you know, see bad movies where women are, you know, set up as superheroes, but they're also mm-hmm. uber sexualized. Right? right. So they're not right. really superheroes like the dudes. You know, mm-hmm. they're a very different type of superhero. And yeah, so finally, you know, now we see, oh, people will go see Captain Marvel. People will go Mm -hmm. see Wonder Woman. Right. And so now we're now the studios are kind of like, okay, maybe we'll do something like this. It's like, okay, now how about a woman of color? They're like, whoa, 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 let's pump the brakes here. We're not. (laughs) Exactly. They refuse to take those steps. Um, Yeah. But, you know, but time and time again, these big movies have I mean, you know, Crazy Rich Asians was a really big hit last year. Um, you know, Black Panther, obviously a really big hit. There are room for, or is room for these other stories to be told. Um, yet there is still this re- reluctance and hesitance on the part of studios to do that. Um, yeah. And I think until some of the studio heads, I think, and again, not to get on my feminist buzzkill soapbox, but until... No, please, that soapbox is there. <laughs> Go for it. It's, it's, and, it's a permanent and... installation here. <laughs> Perfect. Until the board of directors and the people who run the studios, until they become more inclusive and diverse, it's going to be the same ideas over and over. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I think with the dawn of the Me Too movement, there was some move in the last year or so to try to diversify a bit, but it really isn't to the point it needs to be where women and people of color in those positions on the boards are able to have enough power to make substantial changes to the industry. It can't just be one or two token hires. It has to be a much more organizationally based shift and Mm -hmm. a shift in thinking and a shift in the way they even conduct their audience research uh, to try to figure out what is going to find an audience. Now, maybe some of the films won't find the same audience as Avengers Endgame, but mm-hmm. what is, really? Um, right. But, you know, the days of having a film that you could make for maybe 5 to $10 million and still make a great profit if you bring in 50 to $100 million from it, mm-hmm. uh, that part of the industry seems to be disappearing of late. You know, those kind of mid-sized, smaller films, um, the things that launch the careers of a bunch of our really important directors these days. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but those opportunities for newer directors who are up and coming or directors who like to work in that range, it just isn't there anymore because they're looking for, you know, billion dollar profits instead right. of million dollar profits. So it's, it's a difficult situation, I think, on a bunch of different levels. Yeah, which is odd because, you know, you do have some studios like A24 and Bloomhouse that have found success, you know, with making those cheaper, smaller scale movies. Um, but yeah, like, like it becomes this question of scale, right? Like you said, they want billions instead of, you know, so you could turn around and say, hey, we made 10, 15 times our budget, but it's still not enough for what they're looking for. Exactly. Uh, which is And it's, thank it's goodness baffling. for A24, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Almost everything I go see anymore it's either them or maybe Annapurna. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, Annapurna like is another one, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, a lot of the, the biggies, and, I mean, even some of those are tangentially related to these much larger companies. Um, mm-hmm. But without those production houses around, it's, it's very difficult to have that production-to-distribution line anymore. Well, what's interesting now, too, is, um, you know... We, kind of tying some of these concepts together is how streaming has become in a lot of ways an alternative or maybe a safety net for studios, right? Um, Mm -hmm. You look at Disney, for example, just to, again, pick another name out of a hat. um, It's like half the hat, right? So, yeah, I don't know. This metaphor doesn't really work. Anyway, um, (laughs) but, you know, they had uh, their D23 conference and they announced everything coming to their Disney Plus platform, right? And what I've found is that they, they, it feels like they are shifting a lot of those shows and those movies and those concepts um, that might be a little riskier over to that platform instead, right? Um, yeah. So, you know, in coming back to the diversity aspect, we have the Black Captain America. We have our um, Pakistani American superhero. They're going to show up on streaming because Disney just kind of feels hesitant about making them a lead in a major film because they're worried about the gross, which they shouldn't be at this point. You know, clearly the evidence backs up that people will watch whatever they put out. Um, But it's, it's still baffling, kind of amazing how much there is that fear uh, in the industry and how streaming kind of lets them perpetuate that. Well, and I think especially for Disney, uh, it's all about vertical integration. They want to have these, uh, multiple revenue streams that they can get from it. So they're not just investing in the movie, but they want to make sure that there are publishing rights that they have that go with it and the children's toys and the amusement Mm -hmm. park rides and the video games and the clothing and Mm -hmm. all of that. And that they can get, you know, they can somehow fit it into a larger universe that they can tie the films together. And, I commend them on the fact that they've been able to do this. And I mean, certainly Mm -hmm. tying up the rights to Marvel and Star Wars and Lucasfilm, you know, fantastic. Um, But difficult for anything that's a little bit outside of what that now mainstream is Mm -hmm. uh, to kind of break through because maybe it's, it's just a movie, you know, maybe it's just a movie that doesn't need an amusement park ride. Um, Mm -hmm that it it doesn't need to be something that you go visit on your vacation. It's just a movie you watch and you love it and you, you know, buy it to download it or have a DVD, mm-hmm. you know, one of those sorts of things. So it, it just, it's, 
it really has both strengthened film from an economic standpoint, but it also has these unintended consequences that come along with it. Right. I'm just, I'm just picturing a, a roller coaster based on the farewell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that's either the best or the worst idea that's, that's ever been put out into the ether. So let's go through the multiple stages of grief. <laughs> you can do seven roller coasters, right? Um, yeah, exactly. There you go. Yeah, I have a whole park. Um, so there's a, a lot. So that's kind of like the big kind of elephant in the room. We're talking about this stuff, but there were some interesting um, kind of other things. One thing I noticed, and we've talked about this a little bit off screen um, or off mic, is the fact that we had this sudden spate of movies that were aimed at uh, sort of what I like to call the classic rock format. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of movies kind of like using uh, the music and the kind of culture of that sort of boomer Gen X era. Um, because I actually came to the realization that Bruce Springsteen's more Gen X than anything at this point. Um, I would agree kind of with an, that. That's kind of an interesting devel uh, development. Um, that it, and this kind of search to find stuff that plays to a broader audience because we are dealing with these metrics that are this much higher scale uh, than we used to. It's kind of just like going back and seeing, okay, what other things from other media have people really enjoyed and they also of course look at things like the success of bohemian rhapsody and say hey there's something here so all of a sudden studios might get a bit more bullish about uh, pushing their movies um even though bohemian rhapsody wasn't very good uh deeply deeply frustrating because <laughs> i like queen and queen deserved a better movie than that freddie mercury deserved a better movie than that um but the other so we had three of them come out this summer uh, we had Rocket Man, the Elton John biopic. We had Yesterday, uh, Danny Boyle doing a sort of riff on the Beatles and uh, a world where the Beatles never existed. And of course, Blinded by the Light, based mm -hmm. on um, the uh, um, uh, report. Uh, I forget the gentleman's uh, Javed, uh, and I can't remember his last name. Um, but it was actually based on a memoir um, by a uh, Pakistani uh, uh, young uh, man who grew up in Britain and fell in love with Bruce Springsteen. Uh, so I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. Um, we can probably talk more about the movies themselves later because we'll have a little bit of time to do that. But uh, what are your thoughts? Um, yeah, I think it is sort of an interesting development. I really do think that Bohemian Rhapsody has a lot to do with it, even though both you mm -hmm. and I, I think, are not huge cheerleaders for the film. Uh, Malik to say the was least. good. He, he, did, he did well. Um, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, for me, there were some issues with the storytelling. There were some issues with the editing. Um, but what do I know, right? It won the Oscar for best editing. So uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, because uh, I did a presentation on Black Klansman a couple days after the Oscars and rewatching that movie. I'm just like, how did this lose best editing? Because there's so many scenes like the tension is built through editing and cutting back and forth. And then you watch uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. And it's like, wait a minute. I thought that Queen just formed and now they're already like, you know, seven years into their existence. Like, it's very confusing. Well, in some of the, the scenes, you can tell they're not even in the same place the way it's right. edited um which you shouldn't be like able the... to pick out when you watch the film right isn't there like a scene where they're all sitting around a table and like there's a camera cut 
every two seconds or something like that. And they're literally just sitting and talking. Um, yeah. It's a mess. But anyway. Um, yeah. And even though we might not love it, it, it did well, right? Mm -hmm. People love the film. And I think especially post-theatrical release, people love the film. It's one of those movies that it just seemed to gain momentum. Um, so I think that was not just an inspiration for these films. I think it's more along the lines of the studios felt more comfortable releasing this group of films. So like you said, Yesterday, Rocket Man, Blinded by the Light, mm -hmm. they really are sort of boomer films in some ways, but they have a lot of appeal to Gen X, which I am a part of, uh, mm -hmm. because we grew up listening to all of those bands. I mean, the Beatles, sure, they're from the 60s, but they're also one of the most influential bands in history. So half the stuff that you've listened to since are somehow impacted by the Beatles. And mm -hmm. then Elton John has been sort of omnipresent. And certainly Springsteen, I feel like he really kind of came into his own in the 80s um, when he really hit his sort of peak of mainstream popularity. So I, I do, I feel that he kind of crosses the line a little more Gen X probably than Boomer in terms mm -hmm. of the the audience right and, and they're all and they're all relatively timeless like it's 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 one thing to be like oh you know like i, I see especially going on twitter which you know i don't recommend anybody does um mm -hmm. but uh you know there's a lot of people like making jokes about boomer music and all that kind of stuff but those are all those three acts are all pretty timeless right um they they still have a lot of people, especially you now you have kids rediscovering vinyl and all that kind of thing now, and those are the people that you would listen to on vinyl. So it it feels like it's the right time to be doing those kind of things. It's not just nostalgia pandering. Yeah, and I think yesterday, I think one of the main themes of the film is actually the nostalgia of the mm -hmm. music. And even though it's about the Beatles, and certainly, you know, the Beatles are one of those bands that I think everyone is familiar with and there were so many of the songs that get played throughout the film so mm -hmm. that it really kind of takes a a large range of their song catalog and puts it into the movie um i think the theme of the film itself was just that it, it's about introducing these new audiences to something mm -hmm. that was so important to a culture years ago and whereas i don't know that the beatles have gone that much out of style uh, but certainly it's one of those things that you can reintroduce to younger generations. Um, but I think the film itself is really just about the idea of the shared experience we have through popular culture mm -hmm. that we can all sort of uh, feel a kinship through. Uh, right. And really this idea that it, it brings people together instead mm -hmm. of separating them. I think it's very yeah. much a feel-good movie in that regard, in mm -hmm. a time where there's not a lot to feel good about. Right, and that's the thing, and, and, um, and all three of those movies, they all feel in some ways, uh, you know, and, and Rocket Man's kind of interesting because it is a biopic, and so it's really just retelling Elton John's life, um, but they all feel in some way a direct response, and whether it was intended or not, who knows, but a direct response to our current cultural moment, right? Yes. Um, you had, you know, Rocket Man touches uh, very significantly, and I would say, and not to keep beating on a dead horse, but I think more effectively than Bohemian Rhapsody did, uh, it talks about uh, the queerness of Elton John, right? 
Um, it addresses, you know, his, uh, you know, the fact that he is a gay man and the challenges he would have faced back then. Whereas I feel in Bohemian Rhapsody, Freddie Mercury's queerness is kind of pushed to the side for a lot of it. Um, yeah. Again, agrees. Um, but, yeah, and, Riley and so has very, very strong feelings about Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, you know, and that's, that's an important thing to consider, uh, you know, in an age where we are seeing, you know, a lot of LGBTQ individuals, um, worried about what the future is going to hold after some pretty significant, um, accomplishments or advancements over the last few years. Uh, you know, and then you have Blinded by the Light, which is literally about, uh, the immigrant experience, the creeping rise of neo-fascism, um, <laughs> like, uh, all wrapped up in this kind of bubbly Bruce Springsteen juke mo- uh, jukebox musical. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you know, yesterday is, as you said, it's about this whole notion of like, you know, the, the shared cultural experience. And I, and I wonder if like that, you know, the, I think I feel like there's something in the air uh, with these movies and probably and with a lot of other movies that like, how do we make sense of what's going on right now? Yeah, I think that's definitely it. And I think using music as the backdrop allows people to relate to the ideas in the films uh, more mm-hmm. quickly and more easily. Um, so I think that is part of it because it is part of that shared experience that so many people have had. But it also takes someone like Bruce Springsteen in Blinded mm-hmm. by the Light that, again, tends to be sometimes misconstrued. Uh, how many really ultra-conservative politicians have used Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA as sort of a rallying cry, not understanding what the song is about at all. And in, in fact, fact, they actually made... mention that in the movie. Um, yeah, exactly. They talk about that, yeah. And it's like, yeah, he's singing as a working class guy, working or, you know, growing up in a working class town. But really, his whole message is about inclusion and, mm-hmm. you know, rising up. And it's not at all about uh, sort of... A fascist ideology. So I think, mm-hmm. yeah, for sure, all of these films, I think in their own way, some more than others, are making political statements about what's going on right now. And I think certainly Blinded by the Light, like you said, with immigration policies and fascism and the rise of these neo-Nazis, we see history repeating itself. Right. Um, just as it did uh, in, you know, part of Thatcher's Britain, you know, mm-hmm. with racism and fascism. And I think with Rocket Man, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's much different than the way Bohemian Rhapsody sort of skated around the idea of Freddie Mercury, maybe not even skated around the idea of his image as uh, either bi or gay man. Um, mm-hmm. I think the film sort of pushes this sort of subtly, but pushes this notion that, you know, uh, there is no such thing as bisexuality, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because when he says uh, he likes men and women, you know, throughout the film, they're like, oh, well, you're gay. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this idea that someone else is, is, someone else is forcing sort of an uh, an identity upon you. And Mm -hmm. then, of course, you know, these tragic consequences of his uh, sexual orientation. Um, Whereas Mm -hmm. with Rocket Man, certainly Elton John goes through a lot. Um, 
but kind of focusing on the idea that his life is so much better when he can accept who he is right. uh, and realizes that everyone else is going to accept who he is. Um, it, it's a very different message, I think, with the films. Now, obviously, mm -hmm. there are differences in their life story, um, but I think the choices that are made in the films in terms of telling the life stories are very different. And I think right. it would be easy to make tweaks and frame them in different ways. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of interest. So that's the thing I think it's, uh, you know, with all the doom and gloom about where the industry is headed, there was still some interesting stuff happening, even in the kind of like bigger kind of crowd pleasing movies. Um, if, if, if you're kind of looking for it. Right. Uh, and of course, we also had some smaller scale indie successes. I think The Farewell did pretty well um, this summer. Um, you know, there, there are still those movies that can break through here and there and kind of, you know, approach things that wouldn't normally be thought of as mainstream Hollywood territory in a meaningful way. Yeah, I think that's true. I think mm -hmm. we did see, I mean, even a film like Us, you know, which right. predates the summer. I mean, it's not yeah, your... close enough. Yeah, we'll, we'll I think it. what late March. Uh, yeah, it it keeps getting earlier. So exactly. Well, well, well. You said like for you, March was summer, right? So yeah. Uh, <laughs> but even a movie like Us that did really well at the box office and made a big splash, and it's not your typical horror film. Um, it does have a very specific message and a clear message within it. Um, mm -hmm. and it's, it's not a huge budget production either. So I think mm -hmm. that's one of the examples. I mean, there are, like you said, the farewell, you know, did pretty well considering it never mm -hmm. really got wide release across the country and is one of my favorite movies of the year, by the way. Um, and some other indies kind of made a bit of a splash as well. Um, but I think there were some disappointments as well. I think some movies that they thought would do better uh, just kind of didn't do much. Like, mm -hmm. I'm thinking of stuff like, um, oh, what am I thinking of? Like Late Night, for example, right. uh, which I thought would really appeal to a wide audience. I think it's, you know, maybe not the best movie of the year, um, I think there were some flaws with it, but I think it was fun, and I'm surprised it didn't do better. Um, Long Shot was another one. Some that of those was kind movies, of surprising, yeah. You know, they seem to be made for a pretty wide audience. They have well-known stars. Uh, they're kind of fun and funny, um, but just didn't really seem to catch on like I thought they would. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so. Let's talk about the stuff you did like. You mentioned The Farewell, uh, and I was thinking, like, what are, if you had to pick, like, three movies that you would really recommend, that you really liked, that really spoke to you uh, from this summer, what would, what would those hmm. three be? Well, for sure, I would put The Farewell in there. Mm -hmm. It's just a beautiful film. It's funny. It's sad. Um, it's well-acted. Uh, the location shooting that they do is just beautiful. The set design is great. The entire cast is good. 
Um, mm-hmm. So I definitely recommend that. And it seems very real. Um, you could definitely relate to what was happening. Um, another one that really impressed me, and when I saw it, I was like, oh, this is the first solid Oscar contender of the year, was a film called The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And that one, I can't even compare it to anything because it's so unique and so different. Um, it's a really compelling story. It's a quiet movie. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't really have any stars. Um, uh, I, I mean, it, I guess in a couple supporting roles, but nothing that's really going to draw young moviegoers to go out to the box office. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a very emotionally impactful story. And the relationship between the main characters is uh, something that really packs a punch. And the themes that are dealt with in the film, uh, they're really resonant, I think. So that's one that I recommend to people. It probably isn't playing in theaters near you right now, but I think it's uh, coming out and streaming. If it isn't already, it will be in the next I few weeks. I saw something about that uh, hitting Netflix or something. I thought I saw it too, and I can't remember where it was. Um, another one I'd recommend is Book Smart, which I think was super fun. Um, it's Olivia Wilde's debut as a director, and I think it's gotten quite a bit of critical praise. It didn't really do as well at the box office as they'd hoped it would. Um, mm-hmm. It's definitely a teen coming of age film. It is focused on women instead of young men. Um, at, but it's really, it's just kind of a fun romp to go see. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I might have some small quibbles with it that maybe it's like trying too hard to be edgy in some places. Um, but I think it, it was just a, a really fun ride. And I think we need more of these films where you see uh, young women kind of growing into who they are as adults and kind of coming to these crossroads in their lives, which mm-hmm. don't, those stories aren't told as much in Hollywood. So I'm glad just to see that it's out. And it, it really is a, uh, an entertaining film. So if you haven't seen it, check that one out. It is on my list of things to see, but I did not get a chance to watch it in theaters. And I'm a little bit disappointed by that. Um, I well, think it's I, one I that will still be really good, like on a small screen. I don't think yeah, you it lose seem a like ton. You need to have the full, you know, the full, uh, you know, cinematic experience. Um, exactly. Oh, and I know, will. It, I will give yeah. one more shout out. And I know, like we've talked a little bit about this, but a film I really was surprised to like as much as I did was Midsummer, okay. And uh, I was not. <laughs> a huge fan um, of its predecessor. And I hereditary kind of went, for those who are, if you're wondering. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. I should mention. Oh, sorry. Uh, That's what I'm here for. But Hereditary was one of those films that I saw it in the theater and they had me all along until the last, say, 15 to 20 minutes. So really into the third act is where they totally mm-hmm. lost me. Because I just felt like it had built up to being something and ended up not really being much of anything. Right. So I went into Midsummer thinking, 
it's going to be kind of the same thing. And this film, I loved. I really loved it. Now, there may be, uh, it might just be personal taste, but I thought the acting was really solid in it, which mm -hmm. I think it was in Hereditary as well. Um, but in this case, I felt like the film went somewhere, that it had this larger message and that it was sort of fully realized at the end. It's a very mm -hmm. familiar story, but I think the way it was told made it more interesting. Yeah, and so this is the thing, because I'm very much, uh, I was not, I did not care for Hereditary. Um, I was mostly just bored. Because uh, <laughs> I'm not really that into horror movies and that sort of thing at all. Like, I'll, if, if it's a really good one, I'll enjoy it. But this was not, it just did not do it for me. Uh, mm -hmm. and, so I, and so hearing people kind of, and then I, I know you had said that you liked it. And so that kind of made me think, well, maybe Midsummer I will check out. Um, and I probably wouldn't have done that otherwise without the kind of nice, the kind of positive buzz that I'd heard. I really think it's better than Hereditary. Yeah. Now, I was, I know in my sort of group of film friends, I was the minority opinion with Hereditary. They all seemed to love it. And I was mm -hmm. just so super disappointed by it that uh, I couldn't quite figure it out. Um, but Midsummer, I really enjoyed. So mm -hmm. I, I'd give it a shot. Okay, yeah, I mean, that, and that's good to hear. Um, I mean, certainly, like, I could appreciate the craft that went into Hereditary, right? Like, the, the, the filmmaking and the acting was, was good. It's just, I don't know. You, you can't set up a movie as a family psychodrama where people dealing with grief and loss, and then all of a sudden, oh, wait, Satan worshipping. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I felt exactly the same way. That Sorry was exactly. <laughs> I didn't know if you do spoilers, so I was trying uh, to kind of avoid it. I follow the six month rule. If it's been out for six months, you've had a chance. So okay, perfect. I think that movie's been out for like over two years now. So yeah, that was my problem too. It's such a super simplistic answer. It's such a cop out. Like, mm -hmm. oh well, they're just Satan worshippers, and they can do this black magic stuff. It's like mm -hmm. really well, that doesn't that doesn't ring true to anything. Like, there's this buildup of these miniatures are so much more important and that there's some more logical explanation for all of it. And then mm -hmm. it's, yeah, hail Satan. Yeah, it just completely, yeah, yeah, uh, still kind of annoyed. <laughs> what are you going to do? Yeah, I uh, feel like uh, Midsummer is much more subtle in some of that kind of stuff. It's almost not as important as why exactly things are going on mm -hmm. that are kind of crazy in the film, but it's more about the larger themes that are sort of mm -hmm. present about relationships and grief. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think this film does a much better job dealing with uh, themes of grief than Hereditary did. Right. So there, there's one movie that has not shown up on this list. And originally, when we when I first asked you to come on the, the show, we were going to just talk about this movie alone. Um, oh, yes. That, it, it didn't quite work out that way, but I thought we would at least have a little bit of time. Uh, we got to talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, this, as we mentioned before, it's one of the rare, successful original films that came out this summer. Um, or certainly successful on a larger scale. Uh, Quentin Tarantino is what? This is his ninth movie? Yeah, I believe eight so. Was the eight. 
Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you had some thoughts, and, I, and I'll just let you kind of take it from here, and I'll chime in if, if necessary. But yeah, you uh, take it away. Well, so I've really mixed feelings with this one, and I have mixed feelings about Tarantino in general. I should mm-hmm. say, so I've taught Tarantino. I've done director's courses on Tarantino two or three times now. Mm-hmm. And some of his stuff, like, I still, you know, I remember seeing Pulp Fiction in the theater when it came out and just sitting there after it was over thinking, this changes everything. Mm-hmm. Like, this changes mainstream cinema as we know it. And I still hold to that. I think that those early films that Tarantino was doing were so different than anything else that was out, really helped to spur the whole indie film movement. It changed cinema in the 90s. So I do have respect for Tarantino. I think um, some of the stuff he does is pretty brilliant. But at the same time, I also, as his career has gone on, had portions of what he does that I am not thrilled with. And I don't want to have any spoilers about this film, so I won't get into it. How's this? All right, if if you have not seen the movie, you stop stop your tape right now. Good idea. If you record this onto a cassette tape or a (laughs) reel-to-reel, hit stop right now. Scrub forward. Um, uh, but we will be, uh, I, I think you can't talk about this movie without spoiling it. And I think even trying to talk around the spoilers ends up spoiling it. Because I had pretty much figured out how it was going to end just based on people trying to talk around it. So, right. Here's your last And warning. I went to. We're going to ruin yeah. it. Okay, go. Perfect. Yeah, so I went to great lengths not to see too much about the film. I saw the, the trailer in theaters and that's it. Um, Mm -hmm. So anytime anyone would talk about it on social media, I'd just sort of move on to something else because I love to go into films not really knowing Mm -hmm. what to expect. So I figured going in, whatever it is, it's going to be an interesting ride along the way. So the things I liked about the movie, uh, really incredible acting, I think Mm -hmm. especially from Brad Pitt. This is one of the films where I think Pitt is the least Brad Pitt of most of his roles. Um, Mm -hmm. I think he really just owns that character that he's playing. And I think DiCaprio is right there with him most of the time. And he has some really brilliant scenes throughout the film. Um, And Margot Robbie is good too with what she Mm -hmm. has to work with, with Sharon Tate. But... And uh, can I I just give a quick shout out to Tim Oliphant just because he's Tim Oliphant? Sure. Okay. Yes. (laughs) I love him too. Um, so I think for me, the thing that has turned me off from some of Tarantino's films is this whole alternative universe thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so going back to Inglorious Bastards, which I think parts of the film were brilliant, but then by the time you get to the end and it's like, oh, we're going to kill Hitler and the Nazis and end it mm-hmm. there so we don't have to drop bombs and blah, blah, blah. Um, I was sort of surprised by that when I first saw it, but I was like, oh, okay, interesting. And then you get to Mm -hmm. Django, and you kind of have a similar sort of, well, if we'd had the right people there, we would have ended slavery. This never would have happened. And now we get to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and it's like, oh, Manson never would have been able to pull off this 
mass murder, if mm-hmm. there'd just been the right uh, classic Hollywood tough guys around to put an end to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm already at this point, by the time the film was over, truthfully, I was a little pissed off because I was like, oh, you've got to be kidding. This again? And I guess I, I should have seen that coming. Um, but at the same time, I really don't like the idea of rewriting history when it's actual history. Um, mm-hmm. it, something about it to me seems almost disrespectful uh, to what actually took place. And it also seems a little, I don't know, it's kind of that great man theory that if yeah. you know, just the right people were there, this wouldn't happen today. But I mean, that seems so tone deaf in the world we're living in today. It's like, it is happening. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, no one's really stopping it. Um, so the idea that you can simplify these larger uh, atrocities and tragedies that have happened through history and just sort of make it a happy ending. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, that kind of turns me off to begin with. Right. And so, yeah, I, I, I definitely, I absolutely see where, you, where you're coming from. And, and I think in a weird way, so bear with me here for a second. Sure. Uh, this feels different. Like, I, like, Bastards, I'll give them some rope on because I think Bastards was basically a comic book movie. Um, and it really felt like, okay, this is kind of our alternate reality where this happened. And, you know, it's, it, I, and, I, and I enjoyed the idea of the bastards themselves basically failing upward and basically mm-hmm. all but accidentally accomplishing their mission because somebody else actually did it right. Um, but the, and with Django, the whole movie is just a giant middle finger to Gone with the Wind. And I cannot, in good conscience, not be okay with that. Um, that is something I will always endorse. Yeah, Here, though, it, um, I think in a lot of ways, because it is such a personal crime, right? And it is such a, you know, and arguably a formative uh, instance in Tarantino's life, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, this, he, he's of the age where he would have grown up hearing about this stuff, um, certainly being transplanted to Los Angeles, the specter of it kind of hung over the city. Uh, but it also happened so recently, right? And uh, it, it, it just, I don't know, you're, you're absolutely right in that it does feel kind of manipulative in a way or kind of uh, needlessly. And his whole thing is being a provocateur, right? But this felt kind of needless in that way. Uh, yeah. Like there really wasn't, you know, because, you know, there's a long history of like alternative World War II fiction, right? This right. is different. Like this is on a different scale. Yeah, I... And I think maybe I could let it go to a certain extent if there weren't mm-hmm. other things about it that sort of bugged me. Because, right. again, like, just talking about being sort of tone deaf to what's happening in a cultural moment, um, the treatment of women in the film, mm-hmm. uh, the foot fetish has reached a proportion that is actually sort of distracting. It stops the movie. I think throughout the film, almost every woman is barefoot at some point. And Mm -hmm. it really kind of has this sort of feel of 
you know, it's a time when men were men and girls were girls. And mm-hmm. there really aren't any mature women in the film. Sharon Tate is as close as we get, but she's really treated as childlike. We see yeah. her in the scene in the theater with her shoes off, giggling. Uh, she giggles a lot. She dances a lot. And eventually she's literally barefoot and pregnant. Um, and then you, almost every other woman in the film is a teenage girl or preteen girl. Um, so you literally have girls in the film uh, and sexualized at the mm-hmm. same time. Uh, so much so that the camera work is shocking to me in some cases. At first I noticed it with uh, Sharon Tate um, when he was shooting Margot Robbie. You know, he would do the typical Hollywood thing of having the camera drift from her feet up her body. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we see it with some of the Manson girls um, mm-hmm. And some of the shots, it's it's almost lewd. It made me uncomfortable the way yeah. he was shooting them. Yeah, there's the one um, uh, that's talking to Brad Pitt in the car. Uh, I say probably the one that has the most screen time. And I, I'm, tr- I'm drawing a blank in the actress's name. Um, uh, well, her character name is Pussycat. So right. yeah, that one. Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> and, and so like, uh, and I'll I, I think I, I made a, a cruder joke. Uh, in our conversation about this off mic, but um, the, the cam- let's just say the camera, uh, the way he films that particular shot as she's leaning into the car is invasive. Um, mm-hmm. You usually need to have like a, a medical degree to be putting a camera where he puts it. And it's distracting. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm a grown adult, but I was sitting there kind of thinking like, should I be watching this? Like I'm, I'm 30. I'm like, I'm 33. Is that old enough? (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah. So I'm I'm right there with you. It was. uh, And the weird thing is it's always been there, right? There's always been an element, but he's never been this aggressive about it. I think. And maybe that's just the function of his last few movies being period pieces, but I don't know. And it's a weird contrast because when Pussycat eventually gets into the car with Brad Pitt, Mm-hmm. It's, you know, this conversation about uh, how she offers to have sex with him and he turns her down mm-hmm. saying she's not old enough. Mm-hmm. But it's an odd scene. It's not like that's just wrong. It's like, well, mm-hmm. I don't want to go to jail. And right. I've learned to avoid these situations. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all it's. It's very strange. The sexualization and sort of fetishization of women and girls in the film is really disturbing to me. Mm-hmm. And again, I just think in light of everything that's kind of gone on, uh, and especially the connections that some of those events have had to Tarantino himself, it, it seems like odd choices to make. And I'll also say, along those same lines, the idea to kind of take Manson out of the storyline, for the most part. Mm -hmm. We see him briefly. Yeah, we see him briefly, and there's this kind of interesting uh, doubling of Manson with Polanski, which Mm -hmm. I I think is maybe, you know, again, kind of a, a tip of the cat that he realizes that Polanski did some, you know, pretty awful things. Mm hmm. 
But I think taking Manson out of the story for the most part, the emphasis is placed on the women and Mm -hmm. that it's sort of this weird uh, valley of evil women, girls, Mm -hmm. really, valley of these uh, kind of satanic girls that are living out at Spawn Ranch uh, and they've taken advantage of this old man and that they are the ones sort of directing everything. We do see mm-hmm. Tex in there as well. Um, but for the most part, it, it's an odd choice to tell mm-hmm. the story. It really does put the onus of evil on young sexualized girls. Right. And you, know, you can make the argument, well, certainly in the last scene, like those are the people who were actually present at the murder. So, right. Sure. But as you said, if we're changing, context, yeah, like in the larger context, it does play very differently as a result. Yeah, um, exactly. But it was interesting, too, that so not only do they take Manson out of the movie, which is kind of a shame because I really like the actor who plays him because I'm a big Justified fan, as you probably have guessed from my um, brief uh, fawning over Timothy Oliphant. Mm-hmm. Um, and, he, and he's in Justified as well as one of the recurring characters. Um, but this, so for a movie that's ostensibly about the Manson murders and uses them as, as a selling point, they're really not a very big part of the movie. And so most of it, it's this sort of weird shaggy dog hangout story of Tarantino kind of lamenting, you know, bygone 60s, 70s era Hollywood. And, you know, is there a point to any of that? Right. Like, that's the thing I came away from is like, I don't really know what you're getting at here. And I mean, I was entertained by most of it, I would say. Um, I enjoyed it. But I walked away thinking like normally, okay, you know, Inglorious Bastards obviously about, you know, kind of our own sort of relationship with violence in film. Django has a lot to say about, uh, you know, the sort of notion of romanticizing the South and kind of Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Um, Hatefully, I... I, I don't know that the movie's terrible. Um, but this one, this one, I came away from like saying, I guess the sixties were awesome. Like, I don't know what his point is here. Yeah. I mean, there is something about this nostalgia for yeah. old Hollywood. And really at that time when old Hollywood tra- was transitioning into new Hollywood, mm-hmm. that you were seeing these kind of classic Westerns and stuff dying off and, you had more personal directors telling personal stories. Uh, I guess the nostalgia is interesting. But again, mm-hmm. the choice to really kind of look at that as this great period in history of when the film industry was, you know, possibly its least diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's, there's, is, it's all white people in this movie, too. Like, we haven't even talked about that. Like, there is basically nobody in this movie that's not white. Uh, well, apart from Bruce except, Lee. yeah, exactly. Except for Bruce right. Lee, which does not. That's another conversation. Uh, yeah. Poor Bruce Lee. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I don't, I, I guess I don't quite get the motivation totally behind it. I can see why Tarantino would be drawn to it, though, right? That. Mm -hmm. So much of what he does is an homage to, you know, Westerns and action films and a lot Mm -hmm. of these things that, you know, changed significantly after 
that 1970s mm-hmm. era Hollywood move to a uh, more independent sort of vision of what movies were going to be and much more talking mm-hmm. and much less action in a lot of them. Um, so I guess I understand why that would personally be really important to Tarantino. Mm-hmm. But I think then sort of tying it to the Manson murders, I guess, you know, again, the end of our innocence in some ways and mm-hmm. going back to the end of the innocence as a country. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that had already happened with the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and JFK. Yep. And mm-hmm. uh, so I think it's a little late to be sort of the end of the innocence. I think the end of the innocence was at least a year before this film takes place, if not before. So right. I don't know. It, it's, it's interesting. And I will say, as the film was going along, I really was caught up, especially in Brad Pitt's performance um, mm-hmm. and trying to figure out where that was going to go. And especially his interactions at Spawn Ranch, I think, were really kind of compelling to see what's going to happen next. But I don't know where it all goes in the end. Right. It's, I I basically been thinking about it as like a shaggy dog story, right? Like it's a bunch of stuff that happens. And Mm -hmm. that's not completely out of the norm for Tarantino, but it does feel weirdly unsatisfying. Uh, You could argue that Pulp Fiction is also a bunch of stuff that happens, right? Like there is a there are stories that go throughout it, but there isn't like one big culminating event that ties them all together. Right. Uh, and that's kind of how I feel this is almost in that way, kind of a throwback. Uh that it's just a bunch it's just there are like three or four narratives that are intertwined and then there's an ending and that's just kind of it. Yeah, but I think in Pulp Fiction more happens yeah. throughout the film. I oh, think yes. this I, uh, I orders of magnitude, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, and I think that's why Pulp Fiction works. And this one didn't work for me as much because it just seemed mm-hmm. like it's definitely a slow burn, but it's, it's really slow mm-hmm. in the burning uh, until yeah. you get to the end. And it, I'd say in some ways it's, it's almost one of Tarantino's more mainstream films to a certain uh-huh. extent because there's less violence until the very end yep. than probably any other Tarantino film that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, but really, I think this, this is it. Like they're like, that's, but he does try to make up for it at the end. Mm-hmm. So it, it gets, yeah, you say it's a, it's a slow burn, but uh, it quite literally speeds up the burn in the very end. Um, yeah. And one of the most insane sequences I think I've seen in the movie in a while. Um, yeah. And I guess, you know, if I can turn that part of my brain off that Mm -hmm. questions the representation issues in the movie, Mm -hmm. I can enjoy it more. It's like, oh, yeah, the good guys get the bad guys. And not only do they get them, but they, you know, kill them 50 times over, way more than they ever needed to be. And, of course, it harkens back to... Uh, the illusion earlier in the film about DiCaprio's earlier film that he made, which is clearly an allusion to bastards, um, Mm -hmm. you know, with the flamethrower and things like that. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I laughed when the flamethrower came out. I'm like, you can't be serious. (laughs) I I appreciated the audacity of it. I don't know if it was the right thing to do, but I appreciated the audacity of it. And especially in a pool. Like, yes. I love that, yeah, he's going to kill her with a flamethrower while she's in a pool. 
Yeah. Um, it so, was legitimately funny. Like, I mean, it's in a very dark, uh, kind of unsettling way. I'm like, yeah, okay, this is Tarantino. Yeah, like, this, very this, much. This, yeah. I, I should have known what I was getting in for, right? But, um, yeah. So it it's one of those that I think you can see it. And if I don't think too hard about it, it doesn't bother me. Um, mm-hmm. But that's my job. My job right. is to think too hard about it. Well, so, it, it. But I don't think you're thinking too hard about it because the movie invites it uh, with the subplot about Brad Pitt's character, right? Um, yeah. You know, the whole idea that he may or may not have murdered his wife uh, while they're out on a boat. And the only thing we know about his wife uh, is the scene that we see in flashback. And she is this really... Um, you know, just kind of contemptible character that's yelling at him and telling him that he's stupid and kind of worthless. And, you know, he's not as rich as he should be. And, you know, that kind of like very stereotypical nagging wife character. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's all we know about her. And she's one of, I would say, uh, only like, what, three major female characters in the movie. So, right. Yeah, it's. And, and so, like, you know, the, so a lot of the debate has been around, did he actually murder his wife? And maybe the more interesting question is, why is that all we know about her? Um, yeah. Is that something like, we're going to learn more about in a, an upcoming Tarantino film? Who knows? Yeah. Does it tie back to someone else in this alternate universe? I don't know. Um, yeah. I guess it was based on a true story. There was a stuntman who apparently got away with killing his wife or like it was never confirmed one way or the other. And so I guess he wanted to write that in there. But even so, like, that's kind of a weird thing to include. <laughs> like, especially when you're trying to make this guy like the classic sort of tough guy, Hollywood, good guy archetype. Right. Yeah. And then you have the scene with Kurt Russell, mm-hmm. you know, eventually giving in and giving him a job. Mm-hmm. But against the wishes of his wife, who, again, is right. another sort of nagging wife who's telling her husband what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and for some reason, she can't get over the fact that he probably killed his wife. You yeah. know, how crazy is she? Um, right. So it does kind of get into this idea that men are willing to forgive some bad behavior and women maybe mm-hmm. aren't. Um, but I, I, I don't know. Yeah, And then, of course, in my mind, um, I was kind of going back to real life circumstances in Hollywood and, you know, deaths on boats and things like that and thinking mm-hmm. of Natalie Wood. And I'm right. like, is this an allusion to that? I, if, I don't know. I mean, probably. I wouldn't, I, I, knowing Tarantino, the, it's more likely than not, right? Um, yeah, it's, it's a weird movie. Um, you know, and I think that's being charitable. Um, yeah. But also, like, I really didn't like Hateful Eight. So I was kind of like, well, you know what? At least I got something that I enjoyed out of this movie. So, yay, it's better. Um, I have to say, Hateful Eight is the one Tarantino movie I did not see. Yeah, you're not uh, missing a whole lot. I'd heard things, and I was like, I'm going to just skip this one. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I said this. Like, <coughs> if you don't like uh, the way this uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood treats women, you're... <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd say hatefully worse by like a lot. Um, any other thoughts on that? Or we can move on to our uh, kind of final topic here. I think, I think we've pretty much covered that one. Yeah. I, 
I will say, I know from what I've seen from friends and on social, social media now, it does seem that I have sort of a minority opinion on this one. It seems like everyone loves it. Mm-hmm. I was just not blown away. And yeah. I do have some, some questions about what the heck's going on there in terms yeah. of how women are being portrayed. And mm-hmm. it's just, I find it a little disturbing. Yeah. And it's, it, yeah, I, I think I liked it more than, uh, than you did ultimately, but I 100% agree uh, with what you're, uh, with, with that point of view. Um, it is very odd. And especially because so much of the film is built around uh, Sharon Tate as this kind of, pure uh sort of innocent figure and Mm -hmm. there is that sort of like uh dichotomy you know the virgin whore dichotomy is very much at play uh, with how the women are presented they're either and and, you know obviously sharon tate is pregnant uh by the end of the movie because that's history um but you know she's still virginal in the way she's filmed and shot and and lit and that sort of thing. And I think uh, I'd have to watch it again. But I feel like when she's in the theater watching her own movie, the projector light actually almost gives like a halo a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and Tarantino doesn't do that kind of stuff on accident, so it's pretty clear right. what you know he's ascribing some value to Tate in the context of his story as a symbolic figure. Um, and so it is very interesting in that light to consider how the other female characters are treated and are they equally potentially uh, troubling in some respects. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I guess the last big thing, uh, what are you looking forward to? Of course, we got the fall coming up. we got the big award season coming up. Are there any other movies that are kind of jumping at you saying, boy, I really want to check that out or I'm kind of interested to see... Uh, like what the potential award uh, nominees are going to be. Um, what's, what's on your radar? Huh? Let's see. Um, there are a few. And now I'll have to say that I am not the best person to ask this question of a lot of sure. times, because I do tend to try to avoid spoilers so much that I mm-hmm. often like, don't get a lot of details on movies that are coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, um, I'm a fan of Ryan Johnson, so yeah. I am very curious to see Knives Out. Me too. Um, that looks great. I think it looks like it's going to be a nice combination of, uh, like, a whodunit that you can sink your teeth into, but also have a lot of uh, comedy in it. Mm-hmm. So, And I love the cast. Every time mm-hmm. I look at uh, who's in it, I'm like, wow, that should be great. Um, so that's one that I'm definitely looking forward to. Um, you know, I, I am also looking forward to, and shoot, now I've lost the name of it. The Adam Driver film that's coming out, uh, soon. I have a list. Let me see if I can find it here. Um, (laughs) it's like the, uh, it's the year of Adam Driver, right? Marriage, uh, marriage story. No, it's the one about. Uh, it's like the report. Why can I not remember what it's called now? Shoot. Uh, it's about, uh, getting into the Iraq war. Uh, shoot. I'm, I should I'm have done better homework. Yeah, that's all right. Um, the re- yeah, I think it's just called the report. 
So that's one that interests me. I, I guess I'm a big political thriller mm-hmm. fan. It's the one with John Hamm as well. Yep. I think it is just called The Report, It's just right? The Report, yeah. Um, so that one, to me, looks like something I can really sink my teeth into. It's just a genre that I've always been uh, partial to, I guess. I think Annette Benning mm-hmm. is in that one, too. So I like to be able to see that. And I love Adam Driver. Uh, even mm-hmm. if he is in six movies this year, I don't care. I'll go see them all. Yeah, well, um, it's, always, it's always nice to see him in a movie. Like, it's, he's, re- he's reliably good. Yeah. Um, one, well, I guess it's already out now. I don't know if it's going to be getting wider release soon, but Britney runs a marathon. Yes, uh, I believe Amazon. Uh, it's, well, it's an Amazon movie, so for sure it's going to be hitting Prime. Um, but I think they're going to be doing a wider release for it soon, too. Because I know there was just an interview uh, on NPR about it, which gave me hope that it was going to get a wider release. It's one that played at one of the film festivals I work with this summer, just a few weeks ago. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that that's going to get some wider release because I've heard great things about it. Um, so I guess it's technically already released, but I feel like no one's had a chance to see it yet. Well, I'm excited because I'm a big fan of Jillian Bell, and I'm glad to see that she's finally getting to actually star in a movie. Uh, and I think that will be that's going to be really exciting to see. Yeah, me too. That's part of it, and I think it it's again it's one of those personal stories that you don't get to see as mm-hmm. much these days. So I hope that there is room for it in theaters. But there's a whole bunch coming out that I would love to see. Um, I don't think it, even though we're already seeing uh, ads for it, I don't think the Christopher Nolan movie's out till next year, so I won't talk about that one. Um, I mean, Ad Astra, I'm so thrilled mm-hmm. with Brad Pitt's performance in this last movie. I'm hoping that he's just as good in Ad Astra, but that maybe it's a role I can feel better about when I watch. Yeah. I don't know. Um, and okay, this is hokey, but I kind of want to see the Downton Abbey movie. And I know earlier I was like, "Eh, you know, there's no original ideas, but I love Downton Abbey. I'll go see it in the theater. I think it'll be cool. I feel like if you're based on a PBS show, you're not quite, I mean, like PBS isn't the Avengers, right? Like it's, it's, it still feels like a smaller scale indie movie, despite being a very well-known property in its own regard. I will go with that. Yeah. Um, Oh, and one other one, too. And this is not a film that I would normally be excited about. Um, but the new Terminator movie, Dark Fate. Yeah. yeah. I, w- I was sitting there, and I saw the beginning of the preview, and I'm like, oh, what is this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then Linda Hamilton came on screen, and I was like, oh, yeah. I will definitely be there to see it. Yeah, um, that trailer actually made us start watching the Terminator movies. I had never actually watched them. Uh, which I know is like, it's one of those things people always look at me weird when I say, but I never actually watched the Terminator movies all the way through, but that trailer is like, yeah, I'm going to check this out. I've only seen the first two. And then after that, it got a little dicey. I feel like that's all you really, that's all you really need to see is the first two from what I understand. Yeah, I think so too. After that, I think it really gets off track a bit. So yeah, I'm excited about that one. I'm usually not a big action movie fan and, not big on CGI and lots of guns blazing, mm-hmm. but I do want to see this one. I think it looks 
uh, pretty entertaining. I was going to let me run a couple other ones by you that I've got this list up that I think kind of sound interesting. Get your thoughts on them. Uh, Jojo Rabbit, the uh, Taika Waititi uh, called oh, Anti-Hate yeah. Satire. Uh, and Disney apparently doesn't know what to do with this movie. I um, read a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, Taika Waititi has a lifetime pass for me. Anything he wants to do, I'm going to go see. Um, <laughs> but uh, this one, it's just so... Like, I don't know. It takes a lot of work to make a movie that has Hitler as a major character look really delightful and charming. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, but he, that's, but he that's tough. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's going to be a tough needle to thread. But I think if anybody can do it and do it in a way that is respectful um, and smart, it is him. Uh, I'm also, I think, uh, what's this one? Um, Queen and Slim looks really potentially interesting. Oh, yeah, uh, that does look good. Yeah. Uh, Dan- Daniel Kaluuya is great. The The plot is really intriguing. The trailer is excellent. Um, and it is kind of an interesting take on the Bonnie and Clyde story. Uh, from a, like, and, and I like that it's, uh, you know, it's coming from a different place than we would normally see something like this coming from. Right. Oh, I will also mention The Goldfinch, uh, which is actually just coming out in a couple weeks. Um, but partly, I really think I'm, I, I'm partial to it because one of my former students worked on it. Um, oh. But it, it looks really compelling to me. And I did not read the book. So, again, I'll be able to go in blind. But I think visually it looks really interesting to me. And uh, I, I think the cast is great, too. So I'm going to give that one a, a shot. Yeah, I hadn't actually, I'm still not entirely sure what this movie is about, Um, but it certainly looks compelling. Uh, It it looks like there's something interesting there. Yeah, and I don't want to know too much about it, because I feel like it'll just ruin it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then, of course, we have, uh, let's see, what was the other one I just looked at here? Parasite looks interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Another uh, Bong Joon-ho movie, and those are always... uh, unsettling but interesting yeah uh but terrifying in a very kind of real way Um, yeah uh even snowpiercer which is kind of like the most like mainstream kind of sci-fi thing he's done is still very unsettling uh and and very upsetting in a lot of ways yeah Yeah. definitely there's a lot of good stuff coming uh and and so it's 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 easy i think like i don't know Do, do you think that we still have hope for the movie industry I do. You know, despite being cynical, I always hold out hope. I think Mm -hmm. just when I'm feeling down, then there'll be a run of really great movies that get released. And I Mm -hmm. think as we get closer to Oscar season, too, um, I often feel like it's almost like an every other year arc for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Last year, I felt was an okay year. Um, But if you went back to the year before, I thought it was super strong. And again, Mm -hmm. for me, it seems like it almost cycles through. So whenever I feel like there isn't enough uh, kind of, not that everything has to be important that comes out, but that some of it is, you know, that some Mm -hmm. of it has like a a larger message or something that's going to reverberate a little bit more. Um, mm-hmm. but I like to go see fun movies too. So right. yeah, well, I'm, I'm always hopeful. Star Wars. I'm, I'm, I'm stoked for Star Wars. That's going to be fun. <laughs> yeah, of course. And I know people are already like, well, but 
but whatever. It's a Star Wars movie, right? Right. It looks great. I'm really excited for the second part of It, and I don't normally like horror movies. That's really saying something. You know, you know like, I didn't see the first It, but I want to go see the second one because it really looks good to me. The first one, I was like, oh, I'm going to be scared. Uh, but the second it's, one, it's, I might still be scared, but it looks more like my kind of movie. I recommend seeing the, because um, the, we're talking about the uh, the remake version that came out a couple right. years ago, right? Yeah. Um, I, I really enjoyed that. And I think a big part of why I enjoyed it is that it's a horror movie and it's scary. Um, but the thing is that, and so my problem with horror movies for the most part, and I've never really cared for the genre apart from like, you know, I, there's horror movies I like, but I'm not like a horror fan. Right. Right. And part of the reason I, I, I struggle with it is that I don't have a reason to care about the people that are being menaced by this knife wielding maniac or this extra dimensional clown demon or whatever. Um, yeah. What that movie does really well, and I think it's something that Stephen King has always done pretty well, is it gives you, um, like, these characters have personalities, they have backstories, they have reasons for doing the things they do, and there are very real, you know, fears that it plays on, but also the scariest stuff in the movie is honestly not necessarily the clown. It's the fact that, you know, you know, adults aren't paying attention. They don't listen to the kids. Um, mm-hmm. It's the idea about familial abuse and that kind of thing. And that's the thing I think King is always really, you know, he's always found a balance between the kind of like the supernatural and the actual real world horror and kind of like, well, which one's really scarier when you get down to it? Um, right. So, yeah, I really enjoyed that first one. So I, I recommend it. Cool. I'll go back yeah. and watch it before I go see the second. Yeah. Um, this, and the cast for the second one, just phenomenal. Like, yeah, got, that's, that's maybe one of the, you know, Knives Out and that movie are probably the strongest casts coming out in, in this in this uh, last third of the year because it's just, yeah, highly recommended. Awesome. Well, uh, any other thoughts before we, before we sign off? I think that's about it for me. Um, I think, you know, I haven't been super excited about this year in film so far Mm -hmm. um you know like i said there are movies that i've loved that have come out but a lot of them like i'm looking back at the list of stuff i've seen and it's like most of them were like yeah it was good Mm -hmm. I, i wasn't super excited so i'm holding out hope that this last half of the year less than half the year at this point Mm-hmm. is really going to kind of wow me as stuff comes out. Mm-hmm. I mean, here's hoping, right? Like it's, yeah. I have to have hope. Yeah. And that's ultimately what movies are about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anything, uh, so thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, is there anything you want to plug or anything, like if people want to check out your work or, you know, uh, say, hey, you were really cool on this podcast. You know, I want to tell you how cool you were. Like, how can they reach you? What kind of stuff are you working on? Anything like that? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Reality Patty. Uh, and you can always hit me up there. I did just co-direct and co-produce a documentary that mm-hmm. came out early this year on women in radio. Um, it is not released widely yet. We're still showing it at some film festivals. Um, but we're going to find a way to do um, some sort of streaming release at some point, hopefully later this year, maybe next year. So I'll keep you posted on that. And when it, when it comes out, when you do a wide release, we'll have to have you back on. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, I doubt Patty it will be in a theater near you anytime soon, but you know. Hey, 
we'll, like, go we'll watch find it a on way Vimeo or, or Hulu or whatever. Right? Exactly. Everyone yeah, watch and then we'll talk about too. it. Uh-huh. Uh, so Patty Williamson, thank you so much for being on Serious Fun. Uh, really appreciate it. Come back anytime. Thanks for having me. All right. And that has done it for another episode of Serious Fun. Check out other shows on the Phoenix Studios Podcast Network at uwgb.edu forward slash podcast. Special thanks uh, to Kate Farley uh, for uh, putting all sort of being the mastermind behind Phoenix Studios uh, and to our friends at Stitcher and to you, the listener. Have fun at the movies, whatever you go see, just go enjoy it and uh, we'll catch you next time in Serious Fun. to a Phoenix Studio production, the podcast network for the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. For more podcasts, visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts.